one big mystery that I had tackled in a previous book, Sold to an Octopus, was the, the mystery of consciousness. The other big, hard problem in philosophy is time. And I felt, you know, who better than to lead me in this exploration than turtles who live in some cases for centuries, who've been around. They arose with the dinosaurs, yet they survived the asteroid impact. They are the embodiment of patience and wisdom. But then the pandemic came and time stopped for most of the world, but not for us, because now we are on turtle time. The natural world has its own sonic language, its own fingerprints. And that's one of the beautiful things actually about being out here. There is another acoustic environment, another sort of sonic fingerprint, and always changing. And every day is a sort of a different sound picture. I walk out the door and you do hear it changing over time. The leaves are coming in now, different kinds of the bird song. The wind sounds different. It's a wonderful thing to be around and to experience. It's such a wild world there. And there are so many different types of soil, of course, and all these different types of soil ecosystems, astonishingly diverse places, diverse in terms of the physical environment, and diverse in terms of the living organisms who have adapted to different corners and crevices of these physical environments. So it's really exciting to see us exploring more and more these details of life in the soil, which remains so mysterious. And it's just with the help of modern techniques like DNA sequencing and, and other such methods that we give ourselves access to these mysterious realms. Now we've been going around all those areas and, and listening to the sounds of nature it's called bioacoustics. And what we can see is that the soundscape of those ecosystems is getting closer to the natural state. But what's amazing is we can show that recovery of biodiversity makes those ecosystems sound statistically more similar to what humans prefer. And actually we compared it statistically to the sounds of Bach and Beethoven and other classical music that humans have historically loved. And actually the complex, beautiful mixtures of sounds of biodiversity are much closer to the sounds of music that we inherently enjoy. And it just shows how deeply rooted our connection to nature is. As biodiversity recovers, it becomes more enjoyable and immersive and more experiential for humans because we've evolved in those ecosystems where we depend on them to survive. What does it mean to be regenerative? And, and do you have languages with the songs and the cultures that are much older than English or any European language? We cannot speak Lakota without intuition. So regeneration of these languages is important, but if these languages have been here for that long, then why aren't we proposing that, that we could be shown by native people? The songs without them becoming a religion. The songs are the ones that regenerate the earth. And you say prayer, we don't have a word for prayer in Lakota, it's Wolchekia, which means to acknowledge relationship. You see, so we're not always asking for ourselves as if we had, had the scarcity or, or lacking. But understanding a lacking of, because Earth is nothing but abundant. She's always giving life. Animals have always been my teachers, my healers, my mentors, starting with my dog, Molly. When I was a little girl, she's, she was a Scottish Terrier and she was like this, the sister, the teacher, the angel I never had. And she was the one that showed me how to survive my childhood, actually. Emus 
in Australia, three wild emus showed me the path that I needed to take to not work in an office and to work on my own. I had worked at a newspaper for five years, had an opportunity to go to Australia and had some field experience during a two-week vacation in the Australian outback. And the principal investigator at the end of those two weeks says, I can see you're just on fire to, to do field research. I can't hire you and I can't give you any money, but if you ever wanted to research wild animals in Australia, you could stay at my camp and I'd give you food. So I quit my job and I moved to attend the outback. And I ended up following these three emus around, just seeing what they did all day. And they showed me, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I'm one of six children. My parents are a large family. And I always kind of imagine us as, when I look back at childhood, as kind of feral cats running <laughs> running free. Or maybe more like kind of seabirds. And, you know, mum would open the door and set us off for the day. And she wouldn't ring a bell and we'd come back. Her call would be enough to beckon us back for supper. My favorite singing voice is the voice of a curly. Do you know the bird, the sound it makes? The bird with the long curved beak. And it does this kind of bubbling melancholy that, that develops into this hopeful kind of sound and then it drips off. That's my favorite voice. And I suspect that along with the sound of other seabirds was pretty prominent in my youth. But also I grew up surrounded by traditional folk music, the Scottish folk music, but of course, Scandinavian folk music, Shetland music, reels, strathspeys and reels. So that was quite, I think probably my first introduction to the sound of a violin would have been the fiddle, you know, and hearing a reel, which is a quick dance. And of course, yes, the, the sound of the waves and the changing weather. It changes five times a day in Orkney. As a writer, I just think of myself as a voice for my values, a voice for myself. And I would be as foolish as I would be inaccurate to think that my values are someone else's or that my voice is, is someone else's. I just write what I love and what I don't want to see lost or what I grieve that has been lost. Shakespeare is reported to have said all literature is about loss or the recognition of loss. And that sounds like kind of a bummer, but I think it may be so. Even when you're celebrating something, implicit in that celebration is the acknowledgement that it is not permanent or not enduring, that it is a moment, and that's why you, you celebrate it. As an activist, I do often consider myself a voice for this landscape where I live, which has been hammered by extractive industries precisely because there hasn't been anyone living here to speak to illuminate what's happening. We want Climate Aid to be a celebration, and this one guitar exploring the question, can one tree save a forest? Can one song save a forest? And we think the answer is yes, we believe it will be. What we want to do with the ancient forest that the guitar came from is establish it as a climate refuge, a place dedicated to storing as much carbon in long-term safekeeping as possible. I would like to see philosophy taught as being essentially about how we ought to live, about what it is to live a good life and why we should lead that kind of life. To me, that's the central questions. It was for Socrates in ancient Athens. He said an unexamined life is not worth living. So I think we should think of philosophy as encouraging students, young people to examine their lives and to think about how they want to live. Now, this is part of the effective altruism movement. Living altruistically ought to be a part of our life, not the whole of our life. We don't expect people to be saints, but thinking about making the world a better place should be one of 
our objectives for everybody. And insofar as we do try to make the world a better place, we should use the resources that we can spare for that, whether that's putting time into it or putting our skills into it or donating money. We should use those resources as effectively as possible to get the most amount of good out of them for what we're doing for the world. Climate change, it gives us a chance to reimagine the world in a way that every single human being can participate in. And so whether you're in a remote part of the United States or some other country, when you learn about climate change, it shouldn't just be the science, it should be the opportunity. The Creative Process and One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Mischalski Foundation. This podcast is produced by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Max Richter's music featured in this episode was on the nature of daylight from the Blue Notebooks and Path 19, Yet Frailest, from Sleep. Music is courtesy of Max Richter, Universal Music Enterprises, and Mute Song. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.